Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. In this episode, we'll delve into the multifaceted theology of salvation, also known as soteriology. We'll look at three tenses of salvation, how we are saved, how we are being saved, and how we will be saved. Now, I realize this can be a very sensitive and controversial subject, depending on what your pre-existing doctrinal commitments are. However, I simply ask that you listen carefully and test what I say here against the scriptures to see whether it holds up. Be a good Berean and see where God leads you. Here now is Theology Part 21, Conditional Salvation. On the subject of salvation, I think a lot of us tend to flatten Scripture out and fixate on one aspect or other. I know I do. And you grab hold of that one key verse or collection of verses, and then it's just like, well, I'm not going to concern myself about every, all the other stuff. And I don't think that's really helpful. So what we're going to do here is look at the past, present, and future tenses of the word salvation, or the, the verb to save, in the writings and letters of the Apostle Paul. And a lot of times we'll just focus on the past tense. We'll say, are you saved, sister? Are you saved, brother? And then other times we might look in and say, uh, fixate on the present tense to say, are you being saved? Are you, are you on, the, on the road? Are you in the process of salvation? Or we look at the future. Will you be saved when Jesus comes? And as, as he writes, he has all three. And he doesn't, he doesn't have a problem. There's no contradiction there. It's just... It's just bigger than any one of those. And so what we're going to do then is start with the past tense and look at what it means to be saved. So to start out, we're going to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This text, just verses 8 and 9 here, this is just an absolutely magnificent expression of what God has done for us. I mean, it's really life-changing. It is stunning what it, what it says here. I mean, it says that we've been saved by grace through faith. And that it, it wasn't by our own doing, it, so anyone would boast about it, but it's the gift of God. And that's some good news there. That's some really good news. I think of it like this. God reaches down with His grace. And we reach up with our faith, and He pulls us out of our damnation or sin or whatever you want to call it, our dysfunction, our chaos. And I I think it's beautiful. Salvation does not depend, especially as we're talking about it in the past tense, salvation does not depend on works. No one can say, I've earned it. I'm so good. I got myself saved. No, you didn't. (laughs) God saved you. You reached up. That's what faith is, right? I mean, God's not going to force you to become saved if you don't want to become saved. He, he's going to, to reach down with His grace, but you have to have faith. And if you have faith, I mean, He pulls you right out. As quick as 
you reach up. And I just love the way that God set that up. I think it's beautiful. I think it's glorious. And in addition to describing this gracious act of salvation, we also find a number of other words in the letters of Paul that talk about this same act of God redeeming us, reconciling us, justifying. We just looked at justification, right? Justification is looking at the whole situation from a legal perspective. So if you're justified, that means you're cleared of guilt. If it's, you know, like justice, law court, just. Then you have reconciled. Reconciled is where two people are not in a good relationship with each other. They're separated. And to, to reconcile is to bring them back together. And then you have adopted, that because of what Christ has done, because of what we've seen, that we looked at about the cross, about the resurrection, about the ascension, about this whole big picture of justification, because of all of this, we have been brought into God's family. Isn't that awesome? We're brought into God's family. That means that you're his daughter, you're his son, you're a child of God. That's adopted. And then you have sanctified. Sanctified means you're holy. You're set apart because of what God has done in your heart. He has, he has made you holy, and that's sanctified. Then we have redeemed, and that's like you're a slave out on the marketplace in the first century in the Roman Empire. They had slaves. And in fact, a lot of the earliest Christians were slaves. And uh, if you're a slave out on the marketplace, you could get redeemed. You could get purchased. That's, in fact, what God did through Christ. He purchased us for himself. He purchased us for freedom to set us free. I love that one. And then last of all, you have regeneration, that we are uh, given a new life. We are, we are given, I always think of batteries. Of course, they didn't have batteries in their world, but you know, your battery for your phone is dead or, or whatever it is, and then you plug it in, or actually this tablet here tonight, this battery was dead, and then we plugged, and it's regenerated, hey, it works. So that's a, that's a good example of regenerated. Uh, so these are all different angles and pictures, and, and you shouldn't take any one and say, well, they're all just this. I mean, it's, it, there's, there are these extra words here because it's bigger than any one word can describe. And I, I think we need to be okay with that, the, the sort of beautiful complexity of it. Then uh, we get to the question, what are we saved from? You ever ask yourself that? What are you saved from? To be saved is not a, a word by itself, right? It's, you have to be saved from something. And so for that, we look back to Ephesians chapter 2. We're already in Ephesians chapter 2. We just go back to verses 1 through 3, and we can see very easily what we're saved from. It talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins in verse 1, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we're, by nature, the children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is what we're saved from. Because the next verse here, But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive with Christ, by grace you have been saved. It's not salvation in a vacuum. The, the context tells us what we're saved from. You're not saved from death because you can still die. It, that would be some testimony if Christians... Never died. I mean, who wouldn't join Christianity then, right? Oh, oh that's, uh, that's just Sue over there. She's 700 years old, you know. I mean, <laughs> it's not exactly how it works, right? So uh, what we're saved from, though, is all of this we read in verses 1 through 3. We're, said, we're saved from the deadness of sin. 
We are dead in sin. We're saved from going along with the evil spiritual forces that are manipulating the sort of like thoughts and, and culture of our age. We're saved from living in the passion of our flesh. We're saved from being a child of wrath, just like the rest. This is what we're saved from. So these are big things. These are not small things. These are big things. And then the next question is, once you know what you're saved from, and we can simply summarize it as sin, right? Um, once you know what you're saved from, the question is, what are you saved for? So look back at verse 8 again. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, verse 10. We are saved for Him. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. So we're saved from sin so that we could do good works. And then the verse ends, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're saved from our sin and our going along with the spiritual forces of this dark time, being a child of wrath. We're saved from that and we're saved for the works that God has given us to do. The good works that he's given you to do and me to do. And a lot of those are the same for all Christians, you know, loving your neighbor as yourself, forgiving other people, these kinds of things. But then some of them are specific. You have certain work to do, Mitzi, that I don't have to do, and I have certain work that you don't. You know, and there, there's different work for all of us to do. And these good works God is in charge of. He's prepared them. So this is the idea of salvation in the past tense. Let's press on to salvation in the present tense. And there's lots of verses on salvation in the past tense, especially in Paul's letters. In the present tense, I want you to go over to 1 Corinthians 15 in the Bible, and we're going to look at a verse there where it talks about salvation in the present tense. And some of the translations differ on this, so I'll just tell you uh, the, the, the ones that line up on either side of it. But uh, in the, the ESV, the NET, the NAB, and the NRSV, it says being saved, and then uh, the NASB and the NIV, a couple others, will just say are saved. But rest assured, I checked the Greek word. It is a present tense. So, uh, and, and just like in English, you could say, "I am being saved," or "I or I am saved." Either one is a present tense statement. Okay. So, but let's look at it. Verse one there. First Corinthians fifteen, verse one says, "Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved." Is what the ESV says here or you are saved is what the NASB and the King James and the NIV say. So this is a present tense reality. Look back at verse 1 again. I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received. Okay, so they had already received the gospel. They believed it when they heard it, and that was some time ago. Uh, maybe five years ago, ten years ago. I'm not really sure exactly how long, but sometime in the past... The Apostle Paul had gone to the believers in Corinth, or had gone to Corinth and converted people to become believers, right, when he first shared the gospel with them. And now he's writing them this letter sometime later, and he's like, I want to remind you what I told you about. I want to remind you of that gospel that I preached to you, which you received, and in which you stand. Look at that. I love that. You stand. It doesn't say sit. <laughs> in which you sit. Right? It doesn't say sit, it says stand. You, you stand for your beliefs, you stand in your beliefs, and, and you hold it fast. Salvation, 
as we see here, is not just a one-time event. Now, there is a beginning point to salvation. If somebody asks you the question, have you been saved, you should be able to answer that question, yes or no. But just because you were saved doesn't mean you're still standing. Okay? And we'll get to that in a minute. There's a, what I'm saying is there's a continuing aspect of... And this is good news. This isn't bad news. This is good news. There's a continuing aspect of salvation. So then, we, of course, we want to ask the question, can you lose your salvation? That's the, the big, juicy question that Christians want to ask. And uh, so I want to run you through a scenario. Ima imagine uh, a young woman starts coming to church, and she hears the gospel, and she, it just totally changes her life. She, she had been using drugs, and she quits the drugs. She had a, a live-in boyfriend, and she decides, I'm going to marry him, and we're going to come to church, and she's reading her Bible every day, and she's praying, she's giving. She's, she's living, she's believed, she's repented, she's changed, she's living a Christian life. And let's say for 10 years. Let's say she does it for 10 years, and she's, she's standing for 10 years, and then something crazy happens in her life, right? And, and there's all different kinds of calamities that can befall us, right? She could lose a child, her husband could cheat on her, she could have problems with her kids where maybe they commit crimes or some sort of uh, diagnosis with a rare disease. Who knows what happens? But some, some, tr some tragedy befalls her, and she just, she just turns away. She, she gets out of the faith, and she quits her Christian activity. She doesn't spend time with her Christian friends anymore. She doesn't read her Bible. She doesn't pray. She starts sleeping around, she goes back into the drugs, and then she's in that lifestyle for five years, car accident, boom, she died. Is she saved or not? What do you think? It's a question, isn't it? it does it matter how you start, or does it matter how you finish when it comes to the, the a race, right? I mean, you look at the Olympics, everybody starts. Well, I mean, you gotta, it takes a lot to get there, but once you, <laughs> once you get there, you start. Right? But the person who finishes wins. And uh, you've you got, you got to finish. But let's hold that question to the side. Maybe may, may we can explore it a little bit more. I've got for you three statements of faith from different traditions. The first is from the Southern Baptist Convention. They were concerned about Calvinism spreading among their ranks so much that they came out with a statement of the traditional Southern Baptist understanding of God's plans of salvation document. And this is Article 9, called The Security of the Believer. And this is what the Southern... By the way, the Southern Baptist Convention is the largest denomination in the United States, 16.2 million people. So I, I picked them because they're the, the big boys, right? This is what they say. We affirm that when a person responds in faith to the gospel, God promises to complete the process of salvation in the believer into eternity. This process begins with justification. We just looked at that, right? whereby the sinner is immediately acquitted of all sin and granted peace with God, continues in sanctification, whereby the saved are progressively conformed to the image of Christ by the indwelling Holy Spirit, and concludes in glorification, whereby the saint enjoys life with Christ in heaven for, forever. All right. And then it continues, and it says, so that's the affirmation, then they have a denial. We deny that this Holy Spirit-sealed relationship can ever be broken. We deny even the possibility of apostasy. Apostasy means uh, to, to stand away, literally. It means to fall away, 
to forsake your beliefs in something. So the Southern Baptist Convention, which is the largest denomination in the United States, unequivocally says that it is absolutely impossible, once you are saved, to ever fall away from your faith. Then we look at the Lutheran churches. They have this document called the Formula of Concord. Lutherans always have like the best sounding stuff. The Formula of Concord. I mean, you wouldn't argue with that, would you? Anyhow, this is number 11 called Election. And they write, Therefore, we should judge concerning this, our election to eternal life, neither from reason nor from the law of God, which lead us either into a reckless, dissolute, epicurean life, ooh, or into despair and excite pernicious thoughts in the hearts of men. You can look up all those words later. For they cannot, I just, this is the last sentence I'm going for. For they cannot, as long as they follow their reason successfully, refrain from thinking, if God has elected me to salvation, I cannot be condemned, no matter what I do. And again, if I am not elected to eternal life, it is of no avail what good I do. It is all in vain anyway. Okay? So this idea here of elected to salvation, that means chosen. God chooses certain people for salvation. And uh, so it's, it's not that you're choosing God. God's choosing you. And he doesn't choose all of you. He just chooses the ones that he wants. And that uh, gets amplified in the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is very short, but it, it summarizes it very well. And there's a lot, a lot of people all around the world that would say that they agree with this statement. They whom God has accepted in His beloved, effectually called and sanctified by His Spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but they shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved. So this is what it's saying. You can neither totally nor finally fall away, and you will persevere. So this is what we call the Reformed teaching. You know, whereas the Baptist view is what's called the Arminian view, this is the Reformed view. There are different perspectives that people approach the question of salvation from, but by and large, non-Catholic Christians agree that salvation cannot be lost. However, what does the Scripture say? Back to that same verse we already read, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, now Paul is writing to people he knows. He said, I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. And then there's that little word there. You catch that? It says, if. What is all this business with if? Why is there an if there? The only reason to put an if there is that there is a condition. Otherwise, it's a when. If it's certainly going to happen, you say, well, when we go, right? We don't say if we go. If is like, well, maybe not, right? That's what if does in English. Let's, let's read it again. It says um, that if, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. It tells us two things. One, that you're saved, you're being saved if you hold fast. And two, that it's possible to believe and it to be in vain. It's possible for it to be of no use to you. Vain means useless or empty. This verse clearly teaches you must hold fast to the salvation that you are freely given by grace. And only by persevering do you remain saved? 
Let me read it again. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Let's uh, go over to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. I want to look at a verse there. But on your way over, I've got Colossians 1 up on the screen. I just want to read this to you. It says, And you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. And then look at that little word again, right at the beginning of verse 23. You see that there? There it is again. This whole condition idea, conditional salvation. If, so he's, he, again, these are magnificent words in verses 21 and 22, right? I mean, just like really big stuff. You were alienated, you were hostile, but now he's reconciled you. That's one of our salvation words. He's reconciled you in order to present you holy and blameless and above approach before him. The goal of why God has set us free, has reconciled, has adopted us in his family is so that on that last day when Jesus comes, we would be holy and blameless and we would be welcomed in to that final salvation we're going to look at next, the future tense of salvation. Okay, That's the whole purpose of God saving people. He doesn't save people so that they would fall, fall away. He saves them so that they would stay saved. You should be once saved, always saved. You should be. I hope you are. I hope once you're saved, you're always saved. But this verse says there's an if. And I can't make that go away. I mean, what am I going to do, erase it? Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith. You see that? There's this present tense of salvation again. You have to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed, proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I love how Bob Matheson put this. He said, many people are concerned about this, and I understand their concern initially, because they have made themselves feel good about the fact they could never lose it. It scares them. Someone says, are you telling me I can lose my salvation? So people are asking Bob Matheson this question. He's a pastor in Delaware. They're like, he started teaching this, and people are justifiably rattled. You should be rattled if you believe once saved, always saved, and you find out it's an if you continue. That should rattle you. It's an appropriate rattling. Uh, unlike if it's your muffler on your car. That's inappropriate. You've got to get that fixed. And so he, this is what he says to them. My response to that is this. That's the wrong way to put it. You lose your car keys. You don't lose your salvation. Anybody ever lose their car keys? I lost my car keys just tonight. Right before I came here, I, I, lost, I don't know where I put And then I had to find them. I'm here, right? So I eventually found them. But uh, you lose your car keys, you don't lose your salvation. You forfeit your salvation. You walk away from salvation, from your salvation. You don't lose it. It's not something you're, you're going to be surprised. This is a deliberate saying, I'm going to do what I want to do with my life. I'm not going to continue to make Jesus Lord, and I'm going to continue on in some kind of sinful way. The only thing left then is a fiery judgment that God will judge. It's quite a way to put it, isn't it? And if you know, if you know Bob, he's a very gentle soul. But he has that little bit at the end there. Then there's the fiery judgment of God. 
And that's, and that's the way the scriptures are, right? I mean, you look at the attributes of God, compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, abounding in truth, maintaining his love, forgiving. And then there's that last one, yet does not leave the guilty unpunished, right? And that, so it's all love, 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 grace, mercy, just like reach out to me and I'll pull you right out of your whatever you're in. But if you don't, what, what's left is the judgment of God. And God doesn't want anyone to be judged. 2 Peter 3.9, he's, he's long-suffering, he's patient, not wishing that any should perish. Ezekiel 18 and also chapter 33 tells us that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Even we take pleasure in the death, death of the wicked. If, if somebody is really bad, they kill people, or they've done heinous things and they get executed or, or they get what, what they deserve, we're like, oh, phew. That's, that's good that that person, you know, we, we'll take, when, uh, you remember when Osama bin Laden was killed? People were having parades and so excited, right? We take pleasure in the death of the wicked. God does not take pleasure. I mean, he has to do, he's in charge of the Justice Department of the universe, right? But, but he doesn't take pleasure in it, right? And that's his heart. But at the same time, God ain't no chump. That's for sure. All right, so where are we, oh, okay, one other point that uh, we're not going to read out, but I just want to tell it to you, is that in Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul uses the illustration of an olive tree. And it's an important illustration because it tells us how this whole salvation in the present tense, how this whole thing works, okay? And so he says that there is a natural cultivated olive tree that God has been working on or that the, the gardener has been working on. And so a cultivated olive tree, the branches look nice. They have space to breathe, to grow more olives, as opposed to one that's just wild and the branches are going all over the place, right? And so he says, okay, think of it like this. God's been caring for this olive tree for centuries. The roots of it are Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So God calls these people and he works with these people. And then over the centuries, other people come in. You have King David, right? You have all these Israelites that come in. And God's been working with this one olive tree and over these, all these centuries. And then he says, then eventually he sends the Messiah. He sends Jesus. And they reject him. He sends a Jewish Messiah to the Jewish people to offer them salvation. And some of them believe, like the Apostle Paul is Jewish, right? Actually, everybody in the Bible is pretty much Jewish. Uh, well, not everybody, but, you know, it's just chances, chances are, right? They're, they're coming from a Jewish perspective, at least the people who wrote the books, maybe not Luke. But what we have there is a rejection. And what, what he says is that these are like branches that are withered. They don't have faith anymore in what God's doing. And so... A good husbandman, a good gardener comes in and he cuts those off. That's what you're supposed to do. If your tree has these branches, they're cut off. And then it's, he says, those branches are cut off, and that made room for you, Gentiles, you non-Jews, to get grafted in. He says, we're from a wild olive tree. I don't disagree with that. Uh, we're from a wild olive tree, and we get grafted in. We get we get inserted into the tree of faith that God's been working with for all these centuries. And then he says, let me just quote it to you. He says, you stand fast through faith. Now, you want to tell me you can stop having faith and still be in the olive tree. That's not what the Bible says. It's not what it says. 
This is just from Romans 11.21. He says, For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will He spare you. And then He says, Behold, the kindness and the severity of God. And then, He says, those branches that were broken off, those Jewish people that rejected Jesus, He says, if they rekindle their faith, if they come to have faith in, in Jesus, they get put right back in. Right? So this is, this is a metaphor, it's an illustration that shows us how this whole salvation thing works. The big point here for us in this room is to stand through faith, that we would stay connected to that olive tree and bear fruit, that we would have olives, which would be the various things that God asks us to do, like I said before, like loving your neighbor, loving God, telling the truth, these different things that God teaches us would be our fruit. All right, so now over to Romans chapter 8, verse 35. So long as we continue in genuine faith, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Look at Romans 8, 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Look at that list. Those are all external. Look at verse 37. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, verse 39, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You continue to cling to him and he won't let you go. That's what this tells me. This tells me, and there's another place, this is not in the uh, epistles of Paul, but it's in John 10 where Jesus is the good shepherd. He says, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they know me, and I give them eternal life, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. You stay with him, he protects you. That's what a good shepherd does. Or in this, in this case here, it says nothing, doesn't matter what it is, that could possibly come between you. Now, this is the same person that writes chapter 11. And I don't think it's valid to say, well, chapter 11 is a parenthesis. Okay, that's, that's a cheap shot. It's in the same book. The same man wrote both things. You can't take Romans 8 and say, nothing can separate me from God. And then Romans 11 says, well, if you don't maintain your faith, you're going to be cut off like a branch is withered. I don't know about you, but I want to take both. I want to work both together. I don't want to be a Romans 8 Christian, and I don't want to be just a Romans 11 Christian. I want to, I want to have both together. And so the, the resolution is, so long as you maintain your faith, so long as you continue with Him, He protects you from anything that could possibly separate you from Him, from outside. Obviously, that's not including your own falling away. We need to continue to cling to Him. And this takes effort. But thanks be to God that it's not on our own. It's not on our own. We're not saved initially on our own, and we don't continue in salvation on our own. And we, sh we certainly don't get up from the dead on our own, because dead people don't do anything. Ecclesiastes 9.5, right? They don't know anything, verse 10, they don't do anything. So we need grace in order to get saved in the first place. To continue in salvation, we need grace. We need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. But then also, in the future tense, we need God's grace and mercy to raise us from the dead. So grace and mercy and the Holy Spirit are always involved all through the process, no matter where you look. But it's important, what I'm telling you is it's important to maintain 
your relationship with God. That's really important. Tim Keller used a good analogy for this. He said, imagine a, a woman, a wife, who's mad at her husband. It's not too hard to imagine, right? Uh, it does happen from time to time to my dad. Um, but uh, imagine a wife who is mad at her husband. He's always out. He's sharing. Imagine this guy. He's out sharing life with someone else. He's got a, a friend that's a girl he's spending all his time with, and he stays up late with her. I'm not talking about my dad anymore. Just to clarify, <laughs> dad doesn't stay up late with anybody. Um, he, he, imagine this person stays up late with this girl. Now, they're not, they're not, he's not cheating on his wife. There's nothing physical. He just likes to spend time with this particular lady friend, okay? And he, but he confides in her. He tells her of his dreams and of his fears. And uh, he says to his wife, look, I'm faithful to you. I've never cheated on you. You have my name. I provide for you financially. I don't see what the problem is. And she says to him, yeah, that's all true, but I don't have your heart. She has your heart. What about God? Think about this analogy in reference to God. Does he have your heart? Or are you just going through, oh, well, I go to church. Oh, well, I did this. Oh, I gave money or I read the Bible or, or I helped that person across the street or whatever. Thing. Does he have your heart? That's what he really wants. He doesn't, he doesn't want to like set up some rules and be like, oh, well, they did this, this, and this, but not that one. But today is Tuesday, so we'll grade on a curve. That's not our God. He pursues us. He woos us with his love. I mean, think about the cross of Christ, Jesus dying for us. That's his son. He's the only one that always did the right thing. That's the one he gave for you. He wants your heart. He wants you to be overwhelmed by that sense of love, and he wants you to respond in kind. And so, but look, any relationship takes effort, takes work, takes thinking about it, right? So I encourage you, invest in your relationship with God. Do whatever it takes to keep it sweet. All right, so let's get to the future tense here. Romans 13. Please flip to Romans 13. It shouldn't be too far because you're in Romans 8. Future tense salvation. Besides this, this verse really threw me for a loop when I first read it. I was just like, ah, it just ruined my whole theology. Uh, Romans 13, verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. Wake up! For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. That, that blew my mind. I'm like, okay, so let's say, let's say when I first believed, I'm over here when I first believed. Okay, it's so many years later. So now I'm here. I'm not closer to salvation now than when I first, when I first believed I was right at salvation. I was right there. Now, I'm all the way over here. How can I possibly be closer to salvation than when I first believed? He's not talking about past tense salvation. He's talking about future tense salvation, which is over here. And so when I first believed, I was way over there. But now, I'm right here. So I'm closer to salvation than when I first believed. He's talking about ultimate salvation. He's talking about salvation in the future tense. And so, like I said to you before... What do you save from? What do you save from in the past tense? It's from sin. It's from dancing to the devil's drumbeat. It's from being a child of God's wrath. What are we continually being saved from? The same thing. 
right? The, the uh, dysfunction of our own rebellion against God in our hearts, that he's saving us from that. He's freeing us from that, liberating us from that. But then ultimately, what are we saved from? Well, we have this one universal problem, all of us humans. We die. I mean, out of all the different problems as a species we face, we have to say this is a big one. You know, you've got pollution, you've got disease, you've got food, make sure everybody's got food, right? You know, people, the economy, employment, right? We have a lot of problems. But the fact that we all die someday, that's really just a big one we, we face as a species. And here, here's the thing, too. Go look at chapter 5 ever so quickly. Chapter 5, verse 9, the Apostle Paul says there's something even worse than death. There's something even bigger to fear in the future. And that's uh, Romans 5, 9. It says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much, much more shall we be saved, that's future tense, by Him from the wrath of God. There's something worse than death. Everybody's going to die. But you're going you're to ultimately face Him on the day of judgment. And you do not want to face the wrath of God. You don't believe me? Read Nahum. It's in there somewhere. Old Testament. You read Nahum chapter 1, where he talks about the mountains melting like wax at God's wrath. You don't, <laughs> you don't want to be on that mountain. It's melting like wrath, right? So the, the wrath of God and death itself, that's what we need to be saved from in the future tense. Because guess what? When you're dead, you don't sin. So the sin problem's not there. You're dead. You're in the grave. You have one big problem, which is you're dead and in the grave. And then the other, which is... There's a wrath of God coming. You need, you need to be saved from both. And so there is, there is also this future tense salvation. Um, and, you know, you read about, uh, back to chapter 13, you read about the kingdom of God. You read the prophecies of the day of the Lord in the Hebrew prophets. You read about what Jesus taught, that God's will will be done on earth as it is in heaven, that the meek, Matthew 5, 5, will inherit the earth. Or we're going to look at some more of what the Apostle Paul teaches on the same subject. You look at the last couple chapters of the Bible, what do you see? You see a world without death, a world without sickness, a world without disease and suffering, right? You see all of these things, and that's pretty exciting. But then also the world itself is no longer in rebellion against God. That wears on me, doesn't it wear on you? The, the fact that our, we live in a world that is so profoundly broken that most of it is against what God's doing. In that day, it won't be that way. Back to verse 11 here. However, we don't wait passively. We're not sitting on our faith. We're standing <laughs> by faith. Romans 13, verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. I like that. You know, when you, um, when you do bad things, you probably do it more often at night than in the day, right? I mean, is that a fair statement? I, I'm just speaking from my own experience. If I was going to get into some big trouble, it was going to be at night. It's not going to be at 6 in the morning. It's probably not going to be at noon, right? I mean, if I'm going to get into big trouble, it's, it's probably after midnight, and it's, it's with other people around right? In, at, in the darkness. Um, and so the night, he says here in verse 12, 
That's the old you, right? The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. It's a beautiful image. It reminds me of what Jacob said about the glorified Jesus and how to have this brightness. And you, you just would be like, I can't even look at your face, man. Right? I mean, this, he's saying, do it now. Put on the armor of light right now. Let us walk properly, verse 13, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, which was a real typical thing that people did in, in their world. There was a god, Dionysus, uh, Greek name, Roman name was Bacchus. And uh, you, to worship this god, to do things in honor of this god, you would, you would rebel, you would get drunk, and you'd have an orgy. I mean, it was just a normal part of their, their culture. And he says, so, so he's, not, he's not like exaggerating here, like that was something that happened. Like, he's like, don't do that stuff. Don't, don't get in an orgy. Don't get into drunkenness or sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. These are the darknesses that we used to have. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Now look, if you agree with those previous statements of faith that I read, and I don't deny that the people who wrote those things are very smart, and they're probably a holier people than I am. I don't deny any of that. But if that's true, and once you're saved, there's nothing you can... What, what is all this don't walk in the darkness business? Why can't I walk in the darkness? What if I like the darkness? Right? I mean, if you're once saved, always saved, can't ever lose it. What's all this here? Verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime. Verse 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh. It just cuts the legs right out of the whole thing. But if, in fact, there is that if clause that we looked at in 1 Corinthians 15, and I put... there. Are, I've got a collection of at least 20 verses in the Apostle Paul's, John's seen my collections, uh, where he talks about the, the possibility that you could lose your salvation. And not lose it, but forfeit it, fall away from the faith. Verse uh, 14, once again, put on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we need to do. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. In light of our coming salvation then, that's what he was talking about in verse 11. Salvation is nearer to us than when we first believed. In light of our coming salvation, live this way. Our future salvation should pull us toward, toward it. We should feel a, a gravitational pull towards our future, that we want to be in the resurrection of the just. We don't want to be in the resurrection of the unjust. All right, then last of all, I wanted to conclude with this verse just because it's so awesome and it's poetic. 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13 says, The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, uh-oh, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, that's a real possibility. You could, you could be faithless. You could give up on your faith. But even if you're faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. Right? So I love how that puts it because the point is, if you died with him, then live with him. Right? We like that part. And then the next part, if we endure, we will also reign. That's, that's the kingdom of God right there. But that's the whole point. We've got to endure. We've got to stand in our faith. We've got to keep that faith. And if we do, we're going to be there. We're going to reign with him. But if we don't, he's going to deny us. Jesus said just, just the same thing. Paul and Jesus agree. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself.
Thanks for tuning in. That's it for this episode. Just wanted to let you know that we do have a number of other posts and episodes on the subject of salvation that you can take a look at. Go to the show notes for this episode. This is Theology Part 21, Conditional Salvation, and you'll see at the bottom a a link to other episodes and posts on salvation. Also, just wanted to read out a quick comment from my travelogue post called Reflections on My Trip to Kenya. As many of you know who listen to this show regularly, I was out of town a couple weeks back and had a really phenomenal time in Kenya visiting the saints there. And I wrote up a lengthy blog post about that, including some pictures and a video. Anyhow, a number of people wrote in that said, thanks for the update. One, Kim Magnuson said, thanks for the update. God's peace. Tom and Gail wrote, Sean, as you shared your experience, we can see God's steadfast and triumphant love, blessings, and will for you to go against the spiritual battle to stop you from preaching the kingdom. Thank you for sharing the incredible trip, Tom and Gail. Joe Martin writes, wow, what a great testimony. And then Rehoboam, uh, one of the pastors who lives in the Eldoret area of Kenya, wrote, what a testimony, so touching when we surrender to the sovereignty of God. I like this part. Quote, even if the Africans, French, Dutch, and Americans turned me down, rebuking me for even thinking about buying such a big ticket the same day I was due to fly, in the end, God used the Muslims to get me to Nairobi. End quote. Rehoboam writes, you reminded me of one of Paul's journeys when he encountered a shipwreck amidst crisis. I was so blessed by your message of the kingdom, systematically articulated and simple to understand, and thank you for heeding and obeying the small voice that finally made it possible for you to travel thousands of miles to come to little-known remote regions of East Africa. How I had longed to re- listen to more of you teach, unfortunately, was held back in Eldoret due to unavoidable circumstances. God bless you, and please come again. Looking forward to seeing you next year. Well, Rehoboam, I don't know that I'll be able to make it next year, but thank you for the invitation. If you haven't yet read this testimony... I encourage you to take a look at it. It's at restitutio.org, and you can find it under uh, all posts. That's probably the best way to get to it. And Or you could just search for Kenya, and you'll find it there. But uh, God did some pretty incredible things. I faced some serious obstacles where I really didn't know what to do, and and I was able to find myself a way through the situation. It was It was risky, but in the end, God took care of me, and he got me to be where he wanted me to be so that he could do what he wanted to do. And it was pretty awesome to look back on and see how God was at work in the situation, even if in the moment I didn't really get what was going on. So thanks for everybody for your encouraging word on that. Uh, stay tuned for a future episode where I will go into much more depth about the ministry there. Kingdom Life Ministries in Kenya. So look for that. After a number of weeks, I should have that ready. Thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.